Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19, Paul writes to these Philippians, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state, for all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once, as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, my fellow worker, our fellow soldier. But your messenger and the one who ministered to my need, since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I send him the more eagerly, that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in esteem. Because for the work of Christ, he was close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. The right stuff is the title of both a book and then later a movie that documented the lives of the first Americans into space. The written work was authored by Thomas Wolfe in 1979 and won the National Book Award that year for nonfiction. Wolfe's book told the story of the people chosen to be our first astronauts and to launch America into space travel. He focused on the Mercury 7, seven men and their families, Alan Shepard, Gus Grissom, Gordy Cooper, Wally Sherrar, Deke Slayton, John Glenn, and Scott Carpenter. You see, believe it or not, President Eisenhower, who started America's manned space program, he originally thought about sending a different type of person into space. Mercury rockets weren't exactly flown like airplanes. And at the time, some experts suggested that athletes accustomed to high-stress routines like acrobats or trapeze artists would be more cut out for space travel. But Wolf revealed in his book why the test pilots of the 1940s and 50s and their unspoken code of competitiveness and machismo and bravery proved to have the character traits considered to be the right stuff for this mission. These were the men who dared to ride on dangerous rockets and be the first to test man's limits of speed and altitude. Later, Thomas Wolfe, he wrote this. He said, my book grew out of some ordinary curiosity about what makes a man willing to sit on top of an enormous Roman candle and wait for someone to light the fuse. He documents what made the Mercury 7 the right stuff to become America's first pioneers into space. And this is why I have entitled this morning's message, The Right Stuff. For in these last 12 verses of Philippians chapter 2, 
Paul documents the type of character, the right stuff, if you will, that makes a person a pioneer for the gospel. Actually, Paul has already been outlining the right stuff. At the end of chapter 1, he writes, Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. He encourages the Philippians to strive together for the faith of the gospel, even in the face of suffering, for we've been granted both to believe and to suffer for Jesus' sake. In chapter 2, we're told to walk humbly and to put away all selfish ambition. We need to look and be interested in each other more so than just in ourselves. Though we are a church made up of different kinds, we should all be of one mind. And then he points to Jesus to demonstrate this, what it means to have the mindset, the mentality, and how we are to model that same mindset. He looks to Jesus, who was the right stuff. Though divine, Jesus laid aside the perks of his deity and humbled himself. The one who the angels praised made himself of no reputation. Jesus became a man, even a servant. He identified with our human condition. He obeyed God to the point of death, even death on the cross. And now he has been exalted, Paul tells us, above every name. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Today is our opportunity to do it willingly. And when we do, Paul tells us God works in us to do and to will of his good pleasure. Christianity is an inside job. God puts his nature, his spirit, hey, the right stuff into our hearts. And what God works in, then we are to work out. We're told to work out our own salvation. In other words, think through the ramifications of our Christianity. Think through what God's grace and power means to me today. Let the gospel meddle in every aspect of your life. Respect the gospel and what it cost Jesus and carry its implications out to their logical conclusions, which includes turning the church into a non-grumbling, no-complaining zone. We're told to hold fast the word of life, shine as lights in this crooked and perverse generation, and be willing to pour ourselves out for the sake of each other's faith. This is all what he's told us in the previous several verses, which brings us to today's text. When author Thomas Wolfe began to research his book, he originally planned to write a comprehensive history about the space program. But after focusing on the astronauts of the Mercury mission, he felt that his work was done. In Wolfe's mind, these seven men embodied the spirit, the ethos, the daring, that allowed NASA to accomplish all that it did over the years that followed. All its achievements grew out of the right stuff embodied in those seven men. And in these last 12 verses of chapter 2, Paul mentions two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, who also embodied the traits of what he's been writing of, of the right stuff, the type of character it takes to be a true servant of Jesus Christ. There is much we can glean from their example. Timothy was a seasoned pastor sent from Paul to Philippi. Epaphroditus was a believer who volunteered to be the messenger sent from the Philippians to Paul. 
we see the right stuff in the lives of both these men. Well, Paul continues his letter here in chapter 2, verse 19. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. Now, understand first century communications. Think back in the distant past. This is going to stretch your mind now. Can you think back before the days of Twitter and Facebook, beyond cell phones, and even those really cumbersome car phones? Can you imagine past the day of rotary dial telephones? Prior to that, the telegram, the telegraph, stretch your mind even further to those bygone days of the Pony Express. Wow, that's a mind bender. Technology has advanced us by leaps and bounds. But understand, in the days of Paul, all this invention, innovation was still future. In the ancient Greco-Roman world, long-distance communication was conducted by messenger. An envoy would travel, usually on foot, carrying with him a message, sometimes a letter written on a scroll. And his arrival was far from a sure thing. It often took months of travel to cross rugged terrain, to sail over angry seas, to travel bandit-infested highways and trade routes. A messenger navigated great danger to convey a communication. You see, it was a big deal for Timothy to travel from Rome to Philippi on behalf of Paul and for Epaphroditus to journey from Philippi to Rome in the name of the Philippians. Both men were making great sacrifices. The shortest route between the two cities was to leave Philippi and walk westward on what was known as the Via Ignatia. This was a Roman road that stretched 350 miles across Macedonia, ending up on the shores of the Adriatic Sea. Then you had to find a boat, buy passage, and take an ocean voyage for 80 miles to Italy. Once there, it was another 350-mile walk to Rome along another famous highway, the Via Appia. That totals 700 miles on foot, not including the ocean voyage on a rickety ship. Even under favorable conditions, such a trip could take two to three months. You could encounter all kinds of difficulties that would make it much longer. My point is, When Paul talks about sending these men back and forth, it's no small matter. It was expensive and time-consuming and rigorous and dangerous. Yet, people mattered to Paul. Remember when Paul wrote to the Philippians? You remember what he told us in chapter 1? He said, I have you in my heart. He even said this about them, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Paul loved these people. He loved the Philippians, knowing their welfare, getting a bead on their spiritual state, as he put it, was worth the sacrifice and time and risk and labor that went into such travel. See, with the knowledge that came from communication, Paul could pray more powerfully for the Philippians, write more pointedly to them, pastor them more effectively. I wonder what Paul would think of Christians today, people too busy to call a friend, 
even with the multiple varieties of instant communication that are right at our fingertips. When Paul heard of a struggling believer, he saved his money for weeks to purchase an expensive parchment. Then he painstakingly wrote a letter. He waited on an available messenger who then traveled land and sea, braving danger along the way just to deliver this message. Then there was the wait, the grueling wait. Three months there, three months back. At least six months went by before Paul received a response, before he knew how he had been received. This meant painful, anxious, unknowing intervals occurred between every correspondence that Paul would send. He would prod his heart into a letter, then he'd send it off and not get a response for months that felt like years. In our age of instant feedback, it's difficult for us to imagine what that would have been like. Most people get their much longed for tax refund check in lesser time. I know this. I know that Paul would have very little patience with our excuses for not caring about and communicating with one another. He would be appalled to hear of a weaker brother here at Calvary Chapel who slipped through the cracks because no one cared enough to reach out to him and find out how he was doing. How could that be, he would ask, when all you guys have to do is send a text? Really? We need to understand that gospel-oriented people aren't just into work and stuff and being entertained. They invest in the lives of other people. They seek meaningful relationships, and it's hard to relate if you're not willing to communicate. This is why Paul is sending Timothy to Philippi. Timothy's getting ready for the journey. He'll leave shortly. It's time for Paul to make another investment in his relationship with these Philippians. And here's why Paul, here's why it's Timothy that Paul is sending. He says, For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. That's both sad and interesting. Even in Paul's day, people with the right stuff were a rare commodity. You know, if everybody in America today who said they were Christian really operated like one, this country wouldn't be in the mess it's in. As a pastor, sometimes it baffles me why we lack Sunday school teachers, people to care for our kids. Why we have a skeleton crew show up for our men's prayer breakfast. And I will never know how people can come week in and week out and it never crossed their mind that they might give a regular offering because there's probably a regular power bill. But it should be no surprise For not much has changed since Paul's day. Paul had no one other than Timothy who was truly like-minded, who was willing to look out for other people's interests, not just his own, who had a servant mentality, who was willing to let his life be poured out as a drink offering to accentuate the faith of the others around him. Paul moans in verse 21. He says, For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. How sad. They all seek their own. In other words, their favorite subject is themselves. Have you seen anybody lately that fits that description? Maybe in the mirror? 
I read a recent study that reveals 60% of all our communications center around ourselves. And on social media, the percentage is a whopping 80%. We live in this selfie generation, no less. We even have selfie sticks to capture better pictures of ourselves. And yet what's shocking here is that Paul isn't just talking about people in general, not even just church folk. He's talking about spiritual leaders. Paul can find no one but Timothy, not even another pastor who isn't all about himself. It reminds me of the captain aboard the Costa Concordia, the Italian cruise ship that hit an underwater rock off the coast of Tuscany, he capsized and it sank. He was moving too close to the shore. This ship hosted 4,000 passengers. It was on its very first leg of a Mediterranean cruise. The captain sailed too close to the shore. That's where he hit the rock. But there was a reason for it. It turns out he was on the bridge without his glasses, showing off for a woman passenger. She was a dancer, a romantic interest that he had brought on the ship that night. And then when the tragedy struck and the ship began to sink, rather than go down with the ship, he was one of the first to abandon her and jump into one of the life rafts. He was warned by the owners on the phone that he needed to get back to the bridge and oversee the evacuation. You know, it all would have been quite comical had it not been for the 32 passengers who drowned that day. See, a ship's captain should be the epitome of a servant, other-centered, willing to serve even to the point of going down with the ship. Instead, this captain was all about himself and impressing people, particularly one, apparently, and it cost 32 people their lives. This is what happens when a pastor gets the big head, when the ministry is all about him. He starts showing off from the bridge trying to impress the bride of Christ. He loses his spiritual vision. He makes mistakes in judgment. This is when people get hurt. Reminds me of the 2013 College World Series. Three girls ran out onto the field to do one thing, one thing, take selfies. The fans had paid big bucks to see the games. Players had worked all season to get to this point. Stadium employees were trying to make a living, but these three immature girls raced onto the field thinking only about a picture of themselves. It was a complete disregard for everyone else. And this is why a pastor who seeks his own is a travesty. The church meets to glorify God and to build up the saints, not to provide any one of us a platform to show off. Well, Timothy was no show off. There was nothing selfie about him. Paul writes to the Philippians about Timothy. But you know his proven character. That as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Everyone knew Timothy's life. They had seen in him the right stuff. This was Paul's son in the faith. As a young man, he had been raised by a godly mother and grandma, Eunice and Lois. Paul had led him to the Lord back when he was in Galatia. Now he was known for his proven character. You know, whenever a new submarine comes out of dry dock and joins our Navy's fleet, it's first subjected to a sea trial. 
The sailors often call it a shakedown cruise. The captain takes the submarine to extreme depths. This puts pressure on the hull. The idea is to put the ship under intense stress so that any weakness will be exposed. The intense pressure will pop a poor weld or blow out a weak seal. If the hull can be compromised, it's best to know it now so it can be repaired. If it can't be compromised, everyone on board can have confidence in the ship's integrity. And you see, this is what had happened to Timothy. The trials that he endured had tested his mettle. His godly character remained intact under pressure. Timothy's endurance proved his spiritual integrity. His faith in God was real. Perhaps you've been on what we might call a shakedown cruise over the last few months. Maybe the last few years. You've been taken to some deep places. Depths of sorrow that you never knew existed. Realize, my friend, God has his purposes for this. Surely the integrity of your faith is being tested. He wants your character to be a proven one. And here's the point of personal character. Not so we can be proud of ourselves, but so other people will spot our inner strength and lean in our direction. You find an example in a person who's been tested. I've heard it said, the church today has plenty of characters. What we need, though, is more character. Well, Paul says of Timothy, Therefore, I hope to send him at once. As soon as I see how it goes with me, but I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. Remember, Paul was waiting on his day in court before the emperor Nero. He was stuck in a Roman prison under palace guard. There he needed Timothy. Timothy will come to Philippi once his purpose in Rome is fulfilled. In fact, Paul even has hopes to follow him. Now understand, Timothy was probably on Paul's witness list. This young man had traveled with Paul and had seen his ministry firsthand. No one was in a better position to testify of Paul's innocence. Timothy would vouch that Paul wasn't the traitor against Rome that he had been labeled. I'm sure Paul had plans to share the gospel with the Caesar. Perhaps he was counting on a converted Nero to spring him free. After their day in court, Paul would send Timothy on to Philippi And hopefully the Apostle Paul would be right on his heels. But Paul had already sent another brother, a man who also had the right stuff. This fellow had delivered the letter that the Philippians were now reading. And Paul writes of him here, I consider it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need. To the Philippians, this man was their messenger, but to Paul, he had been so much more. Epaphroditus had come to Rome, carrying with him a bag of money. It was a collection that had been taken up by the Philippians to support Paul. You need to understand how the Roman penal system worked. If you ate, or if you were clothed, it was because of your friends and family. There was no such thing as a jailhouse-issued jumpsuit or fresh bedding or even food to eat. If your people on the outside forgot about you, you ended up starving to death or even shivering to death. 
Apparently, the Philippians had sent Paul provisions through a messenger, this man named Epaphroditus. But again, he was so much more to Paul than just a messenger. I wish Paul had elaborated a bit on his experiences with Epaphroditus. But here he refers to him in three ways. Brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier. First, he was Paul's brother. In the church I grew up in, the word brother was sort of a formal title, sort of like Mr. You were Brother Matt or Sister Allie. That's how you were referred to. And as a kid, I would hear this, and it just sounds so weird to me, so unnatural. I got a brother at home who's two years younger than me, and I never go around the house saying, Brother Ken, get your hands off my stuff. Stop bothering me. I'd never act like that. You know, even today, people come up to me, they slap me on the back and say, hey, bro, I'd rather you take the time to learn my name. Actually refer to me in an endearing way. Paul and Epaphroditus, they didn't just call each other brother. They lived like it. They loved each other. They forgave each other. They had each other's back. Is there someone in this church that you can truly call brother or sister? I hope so. We need to be that way in the family of God. When you work out your salvation in fear and trembling, as Paul says in verse 12, you start putting two to two together. You see the implications. All of a sudden, you start to realize that if God is my father, that means that you are my brother. And if having me as part of your family is true, ooh, that might cause some fear and trembling. I'm sure it would. But Paul also calls Epaphroditus a fellow worker. The Greek word here is synergios, from which we get our term synergy. Paul and Epaphroditus had some synergy. You know what that is. Working together, it created an impact greater than the sum of their separate efforts. Combined them, and they both got better. They were better together than they could be apart. That's synergy. Paul and Epaphroditus came from a long list of dynamic duos, like Batman and Robin, Rogers and Hammerstein, Cookies and Milk. Now, don't both those things get better when you put them together, cookies and milk, and Sanford and Son, and peanut butter and jelly, and macaroni and cheese, and Simon and Garfunkel, and spaghetti and meatballs, and Calvin and Hobbes, and Fred and Barney, and Romeo and Juliet, and Penn and Teller, and Hall and Oates, and Kobe and Shaq, and Starsky and Hutch, Hutch, and chips and salsa, and bacon and eggs, Mantle and Maris, Bonnie and Clyde, Sonny and Cher. Should I continue or do you get the point? Their pairing gave them a certain power. See, Jesus expects this to happen in his church. He expects his disciples to discover a certain synergy within the family of God. This is one reason why he sent his disciples out two by two. They could feed off each other's faith and love and commitment 
And this is the kind of synergy that we should find in the body of Christ. Hey, we are better together than we could be apart. If you want to discover a great joy in life, serve alongside a brother. And then thirdly, Paul calls Epaphroditus a fellow soldier. They were army buddies, but they were enrolled in God's army. And nothing fuses two men like fighting battles together. Did you know there's now a website on military.com? There's a page that is devoted to the buddy finder. It boasts now 20 million records. Its purpose is to reunite old army buddies. Hey, a common enemy, shared disciplines, joint missions, close proximity, the things that are involved in military life brings people together in a very unique way. People want to renew those relationships. About the only other service that compares is serving Jesus. A Christian soldier is in a spiritual army. We're fighting spiritual battles, winning spiritual victories. It brings us together. To do this alongside a fellow soldier also brings great joy. And it's clear from verse 26 that Paul and Epaphroditus fought their share of battles together. For he tells the Philippians, since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. You know, it's amazing here that even in a world of slow, snail-like communications, the kind of communications that existed in the ancient world, rumors still had a way of traveling at supersonic speeds. Blows my mind. All the way across the continent, somehow the Philippians heard that their messenger had fallen sick. I've heard it said, bad news travels around the globe while good news is still putting on its shoes. Well, Paul writes... For indeed, he was sick almost unto death. You see, either at Rome or en route, Epaphroditus came down with a serious illness. For a time, he was on his deathbed, uncertain whether he would even survive. But notice what happened. Paul writes, but God had mercy on him. And not only him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. You know, it's interesting to me that Paul, the faith healer, Paul, the great miracle worker, was helpless to bring any kind of healing here to his friend. Notice a couple of points here. First, this means that God doesn't always choose to heal us through miraculous means. He did on occasion. You remember in Ephesus, they took Paul's sweat rags, the rags that he mopped his brow and wiped off his hands while he worked on tents, and he laid them on the sick, and they were healed. How miraculous is that? But it wasn't how God always healed. At times, mighty miracles did flow through Paul, but divine healing wasn't a gift that Paul sort of carried around with him like his wallet in his pocket. Here, if he'd been able to help Epaphroditus, he would have, but he couldn't. Paul admits he was grieved, over his friend's illness. And if he had died, it would have been sorrow upon sorrow. Apparently, what saved Epaphroditus was not Paul's miracle power or the gift of healing, but God's mercy. As Paul puts it in verse 27, God had mercy on him. 
And second, don't listen to so-called Bible teachers who tell you that if you're a Christian and you're walking in the will of God, you'll be immune to sickness and disease. That's not true. If you're ill, it's because of some sin in your life. That's not true either. Understand, Epaphroditus came down with his illness while he was either in Rome or on the way to Rome, but it was as he was trying to help Paul. Notice, he got sick doing the will of God. God has left us in a fallen world. We inhabit fallen fleshly bodies. And this makes us subject to sin's effects. This means we'll all get sick at times. In fact, even if God chooses to heal you today, and he can do that if he likes, even if he does, you're going to get sick again, and you're going to eventually die. One out of every one person dies. You know that, don't you? Think about Lazarus. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, but he still died again. He's not alive today. That means the poor fellow died twice. Hey, in this age, the purpose of God's miraculous healing isn't just to alleviate sin and suffering. It's to demonstrate the power of God and to bring God glory. And God alone chooses when and who he heals. I do believe in supernatural healing, but in my life, God most often heals by natural means. God created our bodies with curative processes, and he's blessed doctors with medicines to help facilitate that healing. God oversees the healing process by his mercies. I suppose there is such a thing as perfect healing, but today it goes by another name. It's called heaven. Chapter 2 closes. Therefore, I sent him the more eagerly that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less sorrowful. As soon as Epaphroditus could travel, Paul sent him back to Philippi. And with the letter that we're currently studying, Epaphroditus was its courier. And Paul encourages them, receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness and hold such men in esteem Because for the work of Christ, he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. Notice those words, not regarding his life. Epaphroditus was willing to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. Paul was its chief spokesman, but he needed the church's assistance. And Epaphroditus was their courier. He persevered to deliver the package. Imagine, Paul's FedEx man gets mentioned in the Bible. The equivalent of the UPS driver makes the pages of Scripture. How about that? His name was Epaphroditus. This man accomplished a simple yet vital task that ended up fraught with danger. It's a good thing he had the right stuff. Realize we all have a job description a bit like Epaphroditus. We are delivery men and delivery women. We are either bringing the gospel or we are supporting those who are. And we need to persevere even in tough times, inconvenient times. Don't let a headache or a hangnail derail you from getting out the gospel. Epaphroditus was faithful despite a serious illness. Let's not let the sniffles stop us from serving the Lord. And it was because he had the right stuff because the right stuff was seen in Epaphroditus, 
that Paul tells the church in Philippi to receive him and to hold such men in esteem. You know, when we see a godly leader, we need to receive him. Don't keep him at arm's length. Roll out the red carpet. Be gracious and hospitable. Let that man speak into your life. Chances are his words will be from God. And hold such men in esteem. Why is it in the church today, the people who get the most recognition are the ones who deserve it the least? They crave the limelight rather than seek the lowly place. Hey, we should esteem those who walk humbly. This was the case with Tony Richardson. You've probably never heard of Tony, but he played 17 seasons in the NFL. Tony was a three-time Pro Bowl selection. He played fullback for the Eagles, the Chiefs, and the Jets. He made a living blocking for other people who were running the ball. Nine seasons in a row, Tony paved the way for another back to get 1,000 yards while averaging just over 100 yards himself. And Richardson's help didn't stop with his blocking. His teammates say he was constantly encouraging and inspiring the other running back. Tony received more joy from casting the spotlight on someone else than on shining it on himself. Tony Richardson once said, I can't explain it, but it just means more to me to help someone else achieve glory. There's something about it that feels right to me. That's what you hear from a man who has the right stuff. And these are the types of people that God uses to build his kingdom. Are you a person with the right stuff? This past week I heard it said, humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less and less. This thought is what fits Paul's words to the Philippians back in verse 3. Let each esteem others better than himself. And when we find a brother with a selfless servant-like attitude, a brother with the right stuff, a fellow worker with proven character, a fellow soldier who works out his salvation, let's esteem him highly. He is a needed example for the rest of us. This was Timothy. This was Epaphroditus. May this also be you and me.